Thank you, choir, for that quintessential transfiguration anthem. And this is the way Matthew tells the story of Jesus' transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up into a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will build three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overwhelmed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus told them not to tell anyone what they'd seen. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it's not surprising, of course, that many mountaintop experiences ha happen on mountaintops. For many of us, mountains are a sacred geography, even before God shows up with stunning Christophany. On a mountain peak, we can see with our own eyes that life has depths and heights that on an ordinary day we don't notice. The air is thin at a mountain peak, both literally and figuratively. The veil separating heaven from earth is diaphanous. And so it's not surprising that when God wanted to reveal to a private audience precisely who Jesus is, in a stunning Christophany, God would do it somewhere near the summit of Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet above sea level. And it also makes sense that God would let Moses and Elijah participate, the two greatest prophets in Hebrew history who also met God on their own mountaintops. Moses carrying the stone tablets of Torah when he came down the mountain with a visage so refulgent it terrified his friends. And then later Elijah too at the same place, hearing that still small voice of God when he was harried and harassed and alone and afraid. And like Jesus himself, Moses and Elijah were guys whose deaths were, I don't quite know how to put this, whose deaths were indecisive. Moses went to the top of Mount Nebo and never came down. They never found a body. They never found a grave. It looks as if God, God's self, buried Moses. And as for Elijah, well, swing low, sweet chariots, right? Father, Father, says Elisha, Elijah's lieutenant. Father, Father, the chariots of God, the horsemen of Israel. Our English Bibles tells us that Jesus was transfigured, but the Greek is much better. That's a Latinism. The Greek is much better and needs no translation. Jesus was metamorphosed. Jesus morphed. His appearance was radically altered. His face shines like a quasar and his clothes are bleached, dazzling snow white. And it's as if for a moment, just for a moment, his terrestrial form becomes transparent 
to the eternity and divinity within it and behind it. It's as if we can see the eternity from which he arrived and to which he will return once he has endured his obligatory via dolorosa. And Peter is just beside himself with hope and happiness. Peter loves Jesus, and Peter does not want Jesus to have to endure his via dolorosa. And so Peter wants to freeze time at this happy moment. Who wouldn't after Jesus' multiple predictions of his demise, of his imminent demise? You know, in the Gospels, Peter can come off as a little impetuous and a little inept. Sometimes he's about as predictable as Donald Trump. But it's always from love. And I hope this story endears him to you just a little bit more. One commentator says, and then there is Peter. This man is a great consolation. Because if God can make a saint from Peter, God can make a saint of any of us. He is all mouth, of course, and he has a project. And, of course, it's a building project. Peter has a capital campaign in mind. He wants to build a shrine and a retreat center to remember this holy moment in this sacred geography. And then Matthew tells us that while Peter is still speaking... Human beings, right? Words, 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 talk, 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 blah, blah, blah. While Peter is still speaking, the mountaintop is covered with a cloud and this stentorian voice announces, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And Peter, James, and John are so rattled they fall face first to the flinty fell. But look what happens next. Matthew tells us that Jesus touches them. There they are, prostrate on the ground. He touches their shoulder and says, get up, literally rise, the resurrection verb. And then he sends them back down the mountain to the valley of need to resume the ministry they dropped for this transfiguration experience. Well, so what, right? What's the point? I'm glad you asked. Isn't the transfiguration a vivid prototype for what it is we try to do here every seventh day in our own sacred geography. To turn the phrase around isn't what we're trying to do here every Sunday in our sacred geography a stumbling, tiny approximation of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. We come to hear God's voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then we do listen to him in the word proclaimed and read in the ancient hymns and that beautiful anthem, in our prayers. And then we come to be touched by Jesus, perhaps disguised as one of his saints, one of the saints pinioned in lead in these stained glass windows or a saint that sits next to us in the pew. We come to be empowered by Jesus, touched by Jesus, and then sent down by Jesus into the valley of need below. Do you know why churches have been putting steeples on their buildings for a thousand years? It's a good question, right? Because steeples are pointless. Ironically, the pointiest part of a church building is pointless. At my last church, we built a new building and we put a steeple on the church for the first time and one of my members, a little girl, saw the steeple for the first time and she asked her mother, what's the point? She meant, 
the point, but she could have been, what's the point of this? Actually, there's a practical answer to that question. You know, before steeples were steeples, they were watchtowers where the night, night's watch could catch a glimpse of the white walkers from afar, like in Game of Thrones. You can hang a bell in a steeple to call the people to worship or weddings or funerals or to toll the hour. And you can hang a lamp at the top of your steeple. On the coasts, church steeples are quite literally landmarks for sailors. Or the most famous story from the War of Independence, Paul Revere tells the sexton of the old North Church Boston to show two lights instead of one to warn the colonists that the British are invading by sea, not by land. But there's a spiritual reason for steeples too, right? They are meant to uplift our gaze, to get our eyes off the ground where they usually are in less than sacred geographies. So I always think of a church steeple as a human-scaled facsimile of a mountain peak. And here at Kenilworth Union, we have an embarrassment of riches and steeples. We have two. Not many churches can say they have more than one steeple. So this is Twin Peaks. <laughs> and I, you know, it probably doesn't happen every Sunday, but once in a while, I hope you hear the voice. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. I hope you're transfigured. A friend of mine told me this story about a pastor who uh, shepherded a small flock in a small town in western Massachusetts. Now, these uh, were modest folk. They were financially vulnerable at, it, at the best of times. You know, they were always a sprained ankle or an appendectomy away from homelessness. But this story happened in January of 2009, and you remember what that was like, right? The first people to lose their jobs were the guys at Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, but then the economic pain made its way down the ladder and touched the people who make $12 an hour at Walgreens or work for tips at the diner. And so on this little Sunday in January of 2009, the pastor stepped out of the chancel and wanders into the center aisle among the congregation with her pencil and pad to take prayer requests. And there were always plenty of prayer requests. They were oversharers sometimes. And one lady rose during this uh, prayer request on this Sunday in January of 2009. She said, I want you to pray for me because I can't pay my rent and I might lose my home and I don't know what to do. And you could hear the sad murmur flow out across the congregation and the pastor doesn't know what to say so she buys time by jotting this note on her pad and then she finally says don't worry Mary nobody in this congregation is going to lose her home because she can't pay the rent and immediately the pastor regretted this she had no idea where this came from she had no way to make good on this promise there were no resources two weeks later during the prayer request still January of 2009 an older lady gets up and she begins her talk with an apology. She says, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to make this promise, but I had to figure out how, how I was going to do this. I will cover February. A little silence. Somebody else jumps up. I've got March. This lady who covered February for her friend was living on Social Security. 
We apologize for taking two weeks to make this promise. And when my friend told me that story, I was so touched by it because it seemed as if they were listening to the voice. This is my son. Listen to him. You know, I know the church doesn't always seem like the most promising place for vivid transfiguration, right? Sometimes the American church seems anemic and flaccid. This week I attended a congregational leadership workshop and somebody asked me, so how was your conference? And I said, terrifying. I said, our teachers reminded us that the church is under this tremendous, almost volcanic pressure from creaking, creeping secularism. It's as, if, it's as if tectonic plates are squeezing the rocks and uplifting the rock like the Rockies. My own denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, has about 10,000, just shy of 10,000 congregations. Last year, we closed 187 churches, 2%. You can see how vulnerable our future is. Every Sunday in the United States, among all denominations, 71 churches close their doors for good. Every Sunday. Every year, 3,700 churches stop being churches and become bars and restaurants and residences and museums. By the way, Kenilworth Union is a happy exception to this rule, right? I counted 25 children recessing in the choir this morning. You know how rare that is? Bev Lang sent me an email late this week. She said one of our board members who'd made a generous pledge back in September had decided that it wasn't enough. She was going to raise her pledge by $1,000. I don't know what happened in the six months, but she decided it wasn't enough. And so that additional pledge put us within $8,000 of our ambitious goal. We're going to get it. God bless you. This is a happy exception to what I'm talking about. You should send me to these conferences more often. I come back more in love with you every time I go. <laughs> Kathy came with me. Ask her to tell you about some of her experiences. So we've got some work to do. Um, my son is 28 years old. So a lot of his peers are getting married and settling down and buying homes and starting families. And it's unlikely that most of them will be part of a church like you all are. I am a rare and fantastic beast to my son's friends. When he tells them what I do for a living, they are speechless. I've been there when it's happened. They have no idea what a minister is or does. They have perhaps never seen a minister in action. When they got married, the ceremony was probably officiated by a minister of the Universal Life Church which ordained them online for $25 the week before for the singular purpose of officiating at this wedding. So our expectations for transfiguration are limited in the 21st century American church. But sometimes you just have to get out of town. So I'll tell you this one story and then I'll quit. Many of you have been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, right? It might be the most sacred spot in Christendom, maybe with the Vatican and St. Peter's. Church of the Holy Sepulchre 
in Jerusalem, which claims to be the site both of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. Golgotha and his tomb are under one roof, yards apart. It's impossible to say with certainty that this is the case, but the tradition is as old as the fourth century when the emperor Constantine's mother, Helena, put a church and identified this spot. And so all day long, thousands and thousands of Christians from all over the world are scurrying over this sacred geography. It's a dark and creepy place, but that's where I hang out when I'm in Jerusalem. It's my sacred geography. In the narthex of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there is a rose-colored, salmon-colored slab of marble. It's about eight feet by four feet, and it's called the Stone of Holy Unction. And it is purported to be the place where they laid Jesus' body after they took it down from the cross so that it could be anointed with spices by Joseph of Arimathea. And when you go to the church and stand by this slab, you'll watch person after person, pilgrim after pilgrim, take a a scarf or a shawl or a head covering and wipe the slab of marble with it, almost as if they're trying to mop up a spill with paper towel. They're trying to absorb some of the residual holiness that's there after Jesus' body touched it. And so I'm watching all of this, and I see a a man in a wheelchair 10 feet away. He looks like he's about my age, 60 years old, and his body is all clenched up like this, and his head is bobbing back and forth. He clearly has no control over his muscles. Now, some of you know Kenilworth Union's refugee family, Amo Mari, she's seven years old, she has cerebral palsy, and she's clenched up like this and has no control over her body. So that's what this man was like. I think by definition, cerebral palsy is a birth defect, so he'd probably been suffering from this for 60 years. And there was a young woman, beautiful young woman, standing next to him. She had the raven hair and olive skin of an Italian or a Spaniard. And her shoes were white, her stockings were white, her dress was white, but it was covered with a blue yoke or apron. And so I surmised that she must have been a medical missionary nun. And she pushed his wheelchair over to the Stone of Holy Unction. And then two tall, lean, strapping men, black as Africa, took him by the arms and the legs. One took him and unbent his arms, stretched them out, and the other untwisted his leg and stretched them out. And they held him horizontally like a plank and wiped the Stone of Unction with his cheek, the only exposed skin on his body as if he were trying to experience the residual holiness of Jesus' body. And it just felt like the relentlessness of faith, the exaggeration of expectation that escapes us here in the American church so often. Someone put it like this, transfiguration, is the appearance of God's glory in the midst of our journeys to the cross. Out of the darkness, God sends transfiguring presence. The voice says, it's okay. I'm with you. You are my beloved child. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.